Welcome to the Village Church Podcast. Thanks for stopping by and taking the time to listen. We've prayed that this podcast channel blesses and encourages the Village family. So lean in with an open heart, eager to grow, and enjoy the episode. Uh, the Song of Deborah. It's called The Song of Deborah from the Book of Judges. We've, this is our second week in the Book of Judges. Um, and uh, before I read the book, The Song of Deborah, you just need to know a few of the key characters. You're going to hear of a lady called Deborah. She is a prophetess and a judge in Israel. Okay, she's a key figure in the song. You're going to hear a guy called Barak. He is an Israelite commander of the army. He's a good guy, right? Barak's a good guy. You're going to hear another guy by the name of Sisera. He's the evil bad guy in the song. He's he's the guy that uh, we don't like. Um, He's the enemy. He's a cruel enemy commander of the armies of Canaan. And you're going to hear the name Jael. JL, and she's an ordinary everyday woman who features in the song as well. And I want to ask you, because um, it just helps you listen, and I'm reading from the ESV, to stand. Is that right? If you stand as I read this, and I want you to sort of do your best to concentrate. If you have it in front of it in you and your Bible, you can follow along. But if you don't, just close your eyes and listen to the words of this song. I'll, I'll set the framework up with the verse before it. It says, so on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day. Here's the song. That the leaders took the lead in Israel, and that the people willingly offered themselves, bless the Lord. I'm jumping through to verse 6. In the days of Shamgar... Uh, sorry, Jay, this is a song of Deborah telling the story of the victory that's just been won. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, this obscure woman, okay, the highways were abandoned. The travelers kept to the byways. The villages ceased in Israel until they, they ceased. Everyone was hiding in their tents until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? The answer is no. Everyone's hiding from the big bad enemy. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offer themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. So tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way, to the sound of musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villages in Israel. In other words, sing this song, at the watering holes. All the ladies, when they're getting together, join the water in Israel, let them sing this song, the song of God's victory. What is it? Well, verse 13. Our guys marched down, the remnant of the noble, the people of the Lord marched down against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. Uh, from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff, the princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley, they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. But Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to death. Naphtali too on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought. They fought the kings of Canaan. Tanakh, by the waters of Megiddo, they got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. 
The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. Most blessed of women, BJL. The wife of Heber the Kenite. Of tw- oh, this is verse 24 if you're following along. Of tent dwelling women, most blessed. He asked for water and she gave him milk. She bought him curds in a noble's bowl. She set her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell, and where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera, wailing through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming home? Why does he, why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Oh, they must be dividing the spoil. Maybe a woman or two for every man. A spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for, for the neck as spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. End of the song. And the land had rest for 40 years. You may be seated. This is God's word. It's a strange song. It's not going to make any sense to you. Maybe you're soon going, well, there's too much going on and there's holes. We're going to fill in the holes with the chapter before, which tells the story of the great victory that Israel won on this fateful day. Um, before, I, before we tell the story, um, does anyone know what a trope is? A trope? In, in movies, there's tropes. What, Richard, do you Okay, so the story of yeah, exactly right. It's like a, it's like a, um, it's like a familiar storyline. A familiar, um, it's a, a familiar storyline that you've heard before. And this is how this is when we when we see these signs, we know how the story's going to go. That's a trope. You've seen it in movies. Um, let me give you a trope in a movie. It's the sun is at high noon. Is it a wind blows across the street and a tumbleweed, tumbleweed rolls past? Okay. Two guys walk onto the street and they face each other. Everyone's running off the street and heading into, in, in for cover. What's about to happen? A gunfight. A gunfight is what's going to happen. That's a movie trope. You, you, Westerns have, every Western, every good Western has that scene in it. Um, uh, all right. Uh, Every, uh, here's the plot of every Jane Austen novel. Uh, a young man and a young woman meet each other at the start of the film or the book, and they can't stand each other. What do you know is going to happen? <laughs> they're going to get married. They're, they're going to fall in love. And you know they are because they hate each other at the start. That's a, that's a trope. Um, or a lone guy sipping a whiskey at a bar and a rowdy group of young troublemakers barge into the bar. What's going to happen? It's going to be a fight, you know, and that guy's going to win. All right? Um, or here's another movie trope. If I sing, uh, I'm not going to sing for you, but if I go, what are you thinking of? Yeah. Anyone in particular in Star Wars? Darth Vader. All right. These are tropes. These are well-worn plot devices, and, and you see it, and you go, ah, oh, I know where this is going. Okay? This, this story is loaded with biblical tropes, biblical threads that, that are woven throughout the scriptures. The one in particular that I want to like, just mention up front is the, is the here in the story of Deborah and Barak and Jael and their victory is the, the trope of the enemy being defeated or thwarted by the coming cunning and deceptive woman. 
the enemy being defeated or subdued by a cunning and deceptive woman. This trope is set up for us in the very first pages of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. All right, we have, um, you know, Adam and Eve are placed in the garden. God gives instructions to Adam. He gives him, um, he gives him a wife, Eve, as a companion to serve in the garden and beautify it and then make the world look like the garden. And there in the garden, um, the, the deceiver comes, doesn't he? Does he deceive Adam? No, he deceives Eve. We're told that in the New Testament. Eve was deceived. Adam sinned with his eyes wide open in the garden, all right? And in the curse that's pronounced, that God kind of, as God kind of takes the situation in hand and is going to work his redemptive story through it, what he declares in that moment is a very specific thing said to the serpent, to the deceiver. He says this, I will put enmity, I will, I will establish a lasting enmity between you and the woman. Between you and the woman. Between your offspring, deceiver, and her offspring. And, and then it narrows it down to one particular offspring. It says, he, the, the offspring of the woman, he shall, bru- shall wound your head and you will bruise his heel. Okay? Have you heard that before? You read it and go, oh, I don't know what that's about. Carry on reading in the Bible. Everything in the Bible is found in the first six chapters. Everything is laid there and its foundations are laid there and it just pops up again and again through the scriptures. In that, in that pronouncement in Genesis chapter 3, we find that there is going to be a lot, an ongoing, uh, it's the beginning of the trope, it's the beginning of the, the thread of enmity between the woman and the, and the serpent. She was deceived, and in the in the ongoing story of Scripture, time and again, these little features pop up that the way the woman features her enmity against the serpent is that she's going to deceive him. All right, she's gonna she's gonna pay him back for her deception. Rebecca is the first one. Rebecca, by her cunning, rescues the blessing for Jacob. Now, you, you, um, if you know your Bible, you'll know Isaac and Rebecca, and you've been taught, hey, Rebecca's the bad one. She's deceived her husband, Isaac. She got Jacob to dress up with, with wool on it, like furry arms, because the big brother was like some furry beast. You know, <laughs> pretend to be like the furry beast, put some goat skin on your arms. Isaac's blind. Go in there and trick him. Trick him to bless you. And we've been taught Rebecca's terrible thing to do. What a terrible thing for a wife to do. She, she is securing the blessing where God always wanted it. Isaac was determined, even though what God had said, the younger will serve the, the, the older will serve the younger, he was determined to go, no God, Esau's my firstborn, he's going to get the blessing. And Rebecca, by cunning, secures the blessing for the one on whom God intended it. Okay, that's a bit of a mind shaker, but go look it up. The Hebrew midwives, you know, at, uh, in Israel, the Pharaoh says, no, there's too many babies around here, man. These Hebrew... Hebrew midwives, kill the babies. Kill the babies that the, that the Hebrew women are giving birth to. Hebrew midwives, go out, help the babies be born, healthy little babies. Pharaoh's like, what's going on? There's more babies than ever. Wow, the, the Hebrew women are too vigorous. They just push these babies out like crazy. Like, they, they ring us up, and by the time we're there, the babies are already there in the cot, all good. And we, we, what can we do? You know? And uh, were, they, were they honest? No. Were they praised by God? Yes. 
They deceived the serpent. Miriam, by cunning, preserves baby Moses and sees that he is nursed by his own mum and raised as a Hebrew. Hey, uh, uh, you found a baby in the basket. Um, would you like me to go and find a nurse for this baby? Yeah, that's a good idea. Hebrew nurse. Okay. Hey, uh, mum, we get to look after Moses again. <laughs> All right? In the house. Yeah, in the house. Yeah. Here, in this story, we're going to find a lady called JL. She is a mother figure. She provides refuge for the enemy. She opens her tent and says, you can hide in here. Come in here. This is a safe place for you to hide. Um, that enemy is the general of the Canaanite army. And um, he, he takes the bait. He thinks she's looking after him. What she's really doing is setting him up for a massive migraine. All right? That's what she's really doing. Here, have, have some milk. Um, you're safe in here. Lie down here, baby. Go under the blanket. Here you are. And she reaches for a tent peg and a mallet and pierces him to the ground, pins him to the ground through his forehead. It's a fantastic story. Told you. Judges is like, it's a great story for kids. Um, so though though the story with JL and is, is a, it, these are all real stories that happen, right? I'm not saying that... Um, the Old Testament was written to kind of weave threads together by making up stories which sounded like they fit. That's not what I'm saying. These are real incidents that actually happened and that, that Genesis background music is, is playing to set the theme. And we're supposed to see the threads come together. God is, we're supposed to look at this story and go, oh, there's, that, there's that theme that was set up in Genesis. God is still in control. God is still gonna, God is still gonna br- crush the head of the serpent even though it's going to nip the heel, even though the serpent's going to nip the heel of the seed of the woman. Now, would you rather have a head wound or a foot wound? Foot wound, eh? So, and on the cross, Jesus was wounded. But it wasn't a wound unto death. It kind of was, but he came back out of the grave again. But what Jesus achieved on the cross was a crushing blow to the head of the serpent, all right? He crushed Satan's head on the cross, okay? And it, and it cost him his life, but it was a foot wound, not a head wound. All right? So that's the big story. Um, Here's how the story rolls. Um, The song in chapter 5 is a song that's going to be sung by all the young ladies as they draw water by the springs for years to come. That's what it says there in verse something or other. Here's where you're supposed to sing the song, verse 11. Sing it at the watering places in Israel to clear the story. What's the story? Well, Ehud dies. We heard of Ehud last week. That's the guy who had the sword. Plunge it into the fat guy, okay? Sword disappears, he dies. That, that cool story. Each week's a cool story, man. Ehud dies. Israel again does evil. I can't remember how many years it is. I think it's like eight years. I should have found that out. I don't know. In my mind, it's eight years. It might not be. Ehud dies. Israel, remember our cycle? You know, good times. Good times make people relaxed. Relaxed people don't take God seriously. Um, when they don't take God seriously, they worship the idols of the nations around them. God sells them into slavery. God sells them under the hand of the Canaanites. That's what happens here. Israel does evil. The Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan. And the commander of Jabin's army is a man by the name of Sisera. And... The oppression that the Canaanites impose on the Israelites lasts 20 years. We're talking half a generation. Okay, This isn't like three bad days and they're like, God, we've done wrong. It's 20 years of hard time, 20 years of, of them putting up with suffering. You know, this is, this is a little bit of a lesson. We'll, we'll put up with garbage in our lives for a very long time before we cry out to God for help. 20 years and then they cry out, God, help us. God comes running. A prophetess 
Oh, by the way, uh, the bad guys uh, um, have the upper hand military-wise. They are fitted out with iron chariots, all right? So they have, they have iron, and the Israelites are not allowed iron. They kind of confiscate all the iron. You can't do anything. All you can fight us is with clubs and sticks. That keeps you subdued, but we have iron chariots to crush you guys. So it's a formidable army. But a prophetess named Deborah, who's also a judge, summons Barak. She calls out Barak, come here. God commands you, Barak, to assemble an army of 10,000. The Lord is giving the army of Jabin into your hand. Go fight him. Now, now Barak hears that. And it's easy to be hard on Barak because he hesitates. <laughs> and I, but I put myself in Barak's shoes and I think, I'd be wanting to know, like, did God really say this to you? And that's what Barak does. He hesitates. He wants some assurance that Deborah is willing to risk her own neck on this prophetic word. And she says, yes. She says, yes. But here's the catch. The glory for the battle, the songs that people are going to sing about the victory around the watering holes of Israel in the future will not have Barak in neon lights. That glory will go to a woman. Okay? Do you hear that? Okay? Barak, I'm a bit scared when you come with me. Yes, this, but this hesitation has a cost. There's a cost in glory. Um, you're going you're gonna to win a victory. Your name's not going to be in neon lights. It's going to be a woman. That's verse 9 of chapter 4. Yeah, 4. Barak summons men from the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. He gets his 10,000. Sisera hears about it, and Sisera is such an arrogant dude with all his chariots. He thinks, these guys are going to be easy, easy meat. Let's go fight them. He rushes out. He goes and meets them in battle, and Sisera suffers a crushing defeat. We don't know quite how that happened, but in the song, there's hints that it may have had something to do with a flood and water. It talks about the heavens raining, the, the brook uh, Kishon, the torrent Kishon swept them away. There's this idea somehow that maybe their chariots were all stuck in mud and they couldn't do anything. Uh, and it's hinted too by the fact that Barak gets out of his chariot and he has to run away on foot. So his chariot's no use to him somehow. We don't know quite how the victory was won. It was God's doing, whatever it was. Sisera escapes on foot and he rushes, uh, panting and puffing, into the camp of Heba the Kenite, who was on friendly terms with Jabin, the king of Sisera. Heba the Kenite's a bit of a, I don't know, he's a bit of a, um, he's made peace with the bad guys, but he's got a, he's got a faithful wife. Okay? And uh, he runs into camp. And Jael sees what's going on, and she says to Sisera, my tent is a great place for you to hide. And she gives him refuge in her tent. Sisera accepts this. Uh, He asks for water. She comes and provides him milk. And this this strengthens the, the motherly image that's being portrayed here. She gives him milk like a mother. Believing he is safe, Sisera falls asleep. She covers him in a rug to keep him protected and safe and quiet. And he, like a diligent little child, has his afternoon nap. Jael quietly walks to the corner of the tent where the spare tent pegs are. And she picks up a mallet and drives that mallet clean through Sisera's head. Verse 21. Barak runs into camp looking for Sisera. He's the last man left of the army. We've just got to kill Sisera. And uh, that glory did not go to Barak. You know, hey, Barak, who are you looking for? I'm looking for that rascal Cicero. And JL says, I think I know where he is. <laughs> uh, would you like to come and look at my tent? 
And there he is, uh, pinned to the ground. The land has peace for 40 years. Okay. All right. What are we supposed to get out of the story? I've got a jumbled collection of thoughts from this, and I'm going to say some things which I'm a bit nervous about, but I'm going to have a go. Um, and I'm recording it for, for Kirsty. This is for you, Kirsty. Um, and... Um, yeah, and I'm happy to talk about some of the things I say afterwards if you want to. That's always the case. You say things, you hear things in church, it's okay to say, I don't know about that. I want to know more. Help me to understand. It's this fully encouraged here. Okay? You're not you're not doubting leadership, you're not um, dishonoring leadership when you say, I have a question. I don't quite understand this. So I want to encourage that. Um, and what I say today, you may have questions about, and I would encourage them. So, first thing from the story, just sitting back and looking at this big story about Jael and Deborah and Barak and Sisera. Number one, women are not and never have been second-class citizens in God's purposes. Okay, that's number one. Women are not and never have been second-class citizens in God's purposes. Women are not and never have been peripheral cheerleaders for the main event, which is men. That's not... That's not the story of Scripture. That's not the picture of Scripture. Um, people sometimes frown on the Bible because it's it's because ma- it's masculine centric. Because and and they think that because they did a head count. All right, they look at the Bible, they do a head count, and go, "There's far more guys in prominent positions than women." The Bible is a patriarchal book that wants to suppress women, but that's that's a paint by numbers hermeneutic. That's that's terrible exegesis. All right. Um, <coughs> You can't read Lord of the Rings that way. If you read Lord of the Rings that way, you'd go, there's far more orcs than hobbits. Lord of the Rings is a story about orcs. That's not the case, all right? You can't, you can't, you can't do that with a story. That's not how to read a story. From Genesis 3, where the battle lines are drawn between the serpent and the woman, all right, to the very last pages of the Bible, we're talking page number 2, to page number 1094, to the very last page of the Bible, the closing images there are of of a glorified bride. The story of the Bible is the story of a a woman, I'll get there, the, the last page, the first page, enmity between the woman and the serpent, the last page, the glorified bride in victory, okay, finally coming together, to be joined to the groom in marriage. That's the last page of the Bible. The whole story of the Bible is the story of a woman deceived and ruined, growing into glorious, redeemed, resplendent beauty because the groom loves her so much. The Bible is not against femininity. The Bible is not against women. The the women are not um, peripheral to God's purposes. The story of the Bible is God's desire to have this wonderful woman. The, the church is pictured in feminine language, all right? So you won't see that if you do in a head count. If you, if you read the Bible like it's paint by numbers and you just do how many men are mentioned, how many women are mentioned, then you'll come up with this weird answer that the Bible is some patriarchal crush the woman book. That's not the case. The Bible is full of exultant glory about women, and we're going to look at that. Um, by, by the way, the, the image of Jesus loving the church is the marching orders for every husband. Okay? Husbands, love your wives. How? The way, the way Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. Okay? Why? So that he might present the church resplendent in glory. 
Jesus loves the church into loveliness, and husbands are to love their wives into loveliness. That's how that's a, Jesus is our model, guys. Um, so that, that's the calling of Scripture. This isn't like a book which subjects, subjects women. This is a book which says that man is the image of glory and glory of God, and that woman is the glory of the man. That's First Corinthians. Okay, man is the image and glory of God. And woman is the glory on top of the glory. Woman is the glory that adorns God's glory, which is man. This is not this is not a book that's down on women. You've heard the propaganda. You hear you hear people beat the Bible up like it makes women into nothing. The the, the Bible is the very antithesis to that. So it's true, girls, that if you're looking for heroes to emulate in the Bible, there aren't as many heroes for girls as there are for guys. But your heroes are pretty good. Deborah is someone to emulate. She, and, and she is she is a woman. She is a she is a woman who doesn't jettison her femininity to count for God. Alright? She is a woman in the true sense. It's true that there are more men than women, but don't fall for headcount exegesis. Alright? The authors of the Bible are not misogynists. The Bible glorifies women. Secondly, girls. Um, the, hor- the Hollywood action pictures of what it looks like to be a heroine, when you watch a movie and you see the girls that are the heroes in the stories, they usually have to forfeit all their femininity to take the hero role. They usually have to shed all the things about um, womanly beauty that are good and right. They have to shed that stuff and act like a man to be the hero. Okay? That is not the way the Bible portrays feminine heroes, all right, or heroines. So whether it's Star Wars, whether it's Charlie's Angels, whether it's Xena Warrior Princess, the, the women become, become significant in those stories by jettisoning their femininity and being women, like being men with eyelashes and curves, basically, all right? Um, there's a hard edge to them. They're, not, they're generally not mothers, they exhibit the same physical characteristics as the man. They're men with curves and eyeliner. Okay. In contrast, the heroines of scripture do not abandon their femininity to defeat evil. They triumph in and through their femininity. Do you see that? Deborah is a mother in Israel. That's what she calls herself. Deborah arises. She is a mother in Israel. And what does she do? She's a. She's like a. She's like a she bear. She summons. She summons the sons of Israel to stand up and take their place and go fight the battle. And that's, that's a mum. That's a mum being a mum. That's a mum taking her sons by the scruff of the neck and going, stand up, you can go fight this battle, get out there. And it's not jettisoning her. It's not, it's not Deborah puts on a sword and picks up a shield and goes and shows the guys how it's done. Deborah stands up as a mother in Israel and calls the sons of Israel to stand up. She speaks courage and backbone into the men of Israel. Jael, Jael mothers Sisera. She doesn't jettison her femininity. Okay, she doesn't go Xena warrior princess on this guy. She's like, I'm only a, I'm only a woman here, and here's my tent, but I can show you hospitality, and I can, I can be all the woman that God has called me to be, and yet strike the crushing blow in this. In this war, like it, it is, it's quite a brutal thing that she does, and I'm not saying that that's not a nice feminine thing to be doing. It's not a really a nice masculine thing to be doing either, sticking a pin through some guy's head. 
Okay, sorry if, the, if you're one of those people that faints with visual images or mental images, I'm sorry about this. Um, blame Judges chapter 4. She, she extends hospitality, she provides milk, adding to the mother child vibe. He's at peace in her presence and he falls asleep. And the final act is pretty raw, but that blow is landed because of all of JL's feminine virtues. She hasn't jettisoned them. Okay, she hasn't jettisoned them. Not Deborah, warrior princess with shield and sword, Deborah, prophetess with contagious courage and powerful words which inspire action in the men. I want to speak to the girls in the room, young girls especially. You live in a culture that is making peace with the erasure of the glory of womanhood. You, you, you don't know it, you probably can't see it because it's the water we swim in. But our culture is speaking daily into your life about the erasure and the, the, the suppression of the glory of feminine beauty. At every turn, you are being asked to abandon how God made you so that you conform to a grotesque distortion or dilution of womanhood, not the weapons-grade potent feminine glory the scriptures present. Right? You just have to take my word for it. You are being catechized in our culture to abandon feminine glory. You are being uh, you are being asked to abandon it in your speech. You are being asked to abandon it in your appearance. You are being asked to abandon it in your aspirations as women. You are being asked to abandon it in the way you carry your sexuality. You are being asked to abandon feminine glory, as the scriptures present it. You are being taught to suppress your feminine glory. You are pressured to abandon and shed the beauty and virtues of God honoring womanhood. And I want to encourage you not to take the bait. Start looking for that. Start, what am I being told here? What am I being told about what it means to be a woman, a, a good woman? <laughs> you know, a, a woman that um, can stand up and be proud. Um, don't take the bait. That pressure from the culture is not coming from a culture that knows what it's talking about. Okay, that pressure is coming from a culture that is diseased and is at war with womanhood. It's at war. Where, where did that war start? Genesis 3. Enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Okay? So that pressure is all coming from a diseased culture that is at war with womanhood. It loves that you're female, but it hates that you're a godly woman. Okay? It's, it's happy with all the fe- with, with the female aspect, but the godly womanhood aspect, our culture wants that suppressed. Now, it doesn't want it suppressed because the culture knows that it's got a better way. It wants it suppressed because the culture is embarrassed. The culture is embarrassed when it sees godly feminine glory. It shows it up. Okay? Imagine five guys on a building site. Um, The boss goes off to get lunch. There's five guys on the building site. Four guys lean on their spades, and one guy is in the trench carrying on digging while the boss isn't looking. Who gets all the pressure put on them? The guy digging a hole. Why? Is he doing a bad thing? Why does he get all the pressure put on him? Because he's making the other guys look bad. All right? The, the pressure that comes on a godly, feminine woman who knows who she is in God and wants to walk in it and, and, and just walk forward in it, that pressure is not coming because there's a better way that you should be conforming to. That pressure is coming from a world who, whom you are making look bad. That's, that pressure is coming from a world that thinks, um, enough of that, thank you very much. This is, it's embarrassing being in your presence. You're showing us up. Can you quit it? Can you drop your spade too and, and come and stand here with us? Don't fall for it. 
Um, guys, let me just um, while I'm while I'm in full attack mode, <laughs> I just want to briefly talk about. Um, we got time? Darn it, we have. We have. Okay, um, pornography, briefly, just a, just a split second. Um, I'll put it this way. C.S. Lewis said this. We use the most unfortunate idiom when we say that a lustful man prowling the streets, and, and if C.S. Lewis lived today, I'd say, I'm sure he would put it like this. We use the most unfortunate idiom when we say of a lustful man in the dark corners of the web looking around uh, is, says that he's looking for a woman. Okay, he wants a woman. Strictly speaking, a woman is just what that guy does not want. He wants a pleasure for which a woman happens to be the necessary apparatus. How much he cares for the woman as such can be gauged by his attitude to her five minutes after fruition. One does not keep the carton after one has smoked the cigarettes. In other words, in other words, the epidemic of porn in our culture is not catering to men's desires. It's not. It's not catering to men's desires. It's unmanning men. Okay? Because it's teaching a man's mind to desire a woman who has unwomaned herself. In porn, you aren't getting a woman. You're getting a shell of a woman with all the feminine glory removed. An unwoman turning us guys into unmen. Okay? Men, w- women don't take the bait. Men, don't take the bait. Porn is bait to unman you. It's not appealing to your masculinity. It's robbing you of your masculinity. Don't take the bait. Preserve your masculine glory by cultivating a deep love and admiration for feminine glory. And you won't find feminine glory in the websites that pretend to serve your masculinity. They are stripping you of your masculinity. All right? Third point, God can and does allow for our chicken hearts. And he can and does allow for our hesitations in obedience, but it will likely come at a cost, all right? God knows God knows our hearts. He knows our frames. He knows we are but dust. He knows our weaknesses. Jesus has walked in our shoes. He knows what it's like to face up to big things and be, like, freaked out by them. Jesus' Jesus' feelings in the Garden of Gethsemane were not faked. He looked at what he was about to face. He, he sweat drops of blood in anticipation of what was about to happen to him, and that was real. Jesus knows that, that courage is a hard thing to muster up sometimes, all right? So God can and does allow for our chicken hearts and hesitations. He understands. But we need to understand that those hesitations and obedience and stepping out and what God wants, if we hesitate, it often comes at a cost, all right? I'm thinking here of Barak. He is commended in the New Testament as a man of great faith, and I don't want to lose that. But Hebrews acknowledges the fact that Barak, with his 10,000, walked into an He walked into a, a fight he was going to lose. And yet he walked into it. And that takes faith, right? Okay? I think G.K. Chesterton said somewhere, there's no, there's no better feeling in the world than walking into a fight you're going to lose and winning. All right? And that's what Barak does. He wins. And, and there's great faith, and his name is on the sort of Hebrews Hall of Fame, faith guys, you know? You want to be like Barak. There's something courageous about that. But he forfeited, he forfeited the full reward of faith because of his hesitancy. He features in Deborah's song. He's like he's like the subtitle of the song, but the fe- the big the big feature in the song is JL. You know? JL. And I'll um and God punches big holes with obscure fists, I wrote down under her name. Big holes with obscure fists. She she's just in her tent, being herself, doing what God called her to do. 
And in comes this guy and presents, you know, she's presented with the opportunity to win the, win the battle and take down the general as a foreign army. Okay? That, glo- that glory does not fall to Barak. Now, we might think, hang on, glory? Reward? Those are bad words. We're Christians. We don't want glory. We don't want reward. We, we, we don't like that stuff. We, we think that um, that's, for the bad, you know, that's a bad thing to go after. But there is a godly ambition. There is a godly glory, which we're called to cultivate and go after. Glory is not a bad word. Seeking glory is it's, it's a neutral word. Where, where are you seeking the glory and what purpose are you seeking it for? Are you seeking glory for yourself? Are you seeking glory so that people clap and applaud you and think you're amazing? And uh, yeah, well, that, that's kind of that, that can go all sorts of bad ways. But are you seeking glory so that the, the Lord looks at you and says, "Well done." That's godly. It's godly to want God's well done. It's want God. It's godly to want God to say, "I'm going to write a song about you that's going to be sung around the waterholes of Israel for years to come." That's a that's that's godly ambition because you want God's glory. Okay, so the Bible in all sorts of places appeals for godly ambition. Jesus says, if you want to be great in the kingdom, check yourself before you wreck yourself. You shouldn't want to be great in the kingdom. Is that what Jesus said? No, just saying it. That's not in the verse. Jesus does not say check yourself before you wreck yourself. (laughs) Jesus says, if you want to be great in the kingdom, here's how you do it. It's a godly thing to want to be great in the kingdom, to be great in God's eyes, to be a person who God says, I know his name, I know her name. That's a godly thing. That's, that's a good ambition. Um, Paul said, only one runner claims the prize. So, Christian, run in such a way that you get the prize. You want to be, you want to you compete, you want to fight, you want to you lay hold of all the glory you can for God's sake. That's not a bad desire. Um, Paul also said if anyone aspires to the office of the overseer he desires a noble task okay did you know that it's in the Bible like what, what are the qualifications of an elder one aspiration you, 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 you want you want the responsibility you want to stand up under the weight God puts upon you and stand up and carry it well that's a that's a godly aspiration that's one of the qualifications for eldership Stott um, I'll just finish with Stott on this point we've got one more point to go is that alright I won't get a chance to say these things again Um, I might never be back (laughs) that's not what I'm saying Um, I just want to read Stott who who was a kind of austere Englishman who you'd think oh what does he know about glory he's he was an amazing man he said this ambitions for God if they are to be worthy can never be modest I'll say that again ambitions for God if they're to be worthy can never be modest There's something inherently inappropriate about cherishing small ambitions for God. How can we ever be content that he should acquire just a little more honour in the world? We want God to get all the honour. And we want to be part of giving it to him. Christians should be eager to develop their gifts, widen their opportunities, extend their influence and be given promotion in their work. Not now to boast, uh, to boost their own ego or build their own empire, but rather through everything they do to bring glory to God. Okay? And, and poor old Barak, he forfeited something of the glory that could have been his. Okay? Um, he hesitated. He won the battle. His name's in the song, but it's JL that gets her name in, in, in the uh, neon lights. All right. Uh, but let me just 
He's not as bad as the tribes that didn't show up at all. All right, do you remember in the song? He's listening to the tribe Zebulun and Ephraim. They they showed up to battle. Now, where was Dan, what was Dan doing? Wringing his hands over there in the corner. What were the, what were those guys doing over there? Um, you know, looking after their ships. Oh, there's a battle on. Oh, I've got to look after some ships over here. My ships need some care. Um, now they they made the song too. They made the song too, but as an embarrassment. Okay, we don't want to be embarrassments for God. We want to we want to stand up and be counted. We want to count for God. We want to get in the fight. Okay, absent that's bad. Hesitant well that's not great. But God can and does do mighty things through hesitant people. But best of all, go big, go early. Have a godly ambition that's commendable and gets God's reward. Lastly. Oh, in this one, mess it all up. Um, the enemy can be laughed at. There's a place for godly ridicule. Okay, the last stanza in Deborah's song is a little bit of biblical satire and a little bit of a cheap shot. Um, here's Deborah, the mother in Israel, summoning the armies to go and fight Sisera, and then she finishes the song with this picture of Sisera's mother. This, you know, she's got her son and he's out fighting the battle, and she's this evil woman who wants victory for her son. And she says, why is he taking so long? Why? You know, this picture of Sisera's mum. Why is he taking so long and coming back from battle? Oh, maybe he's counting the spoil. Maybe there's so much spoil. Maybe there's, maybe there's so many women that Sisera now has in his harem that it's taking him a long time to get home. And, and, it's, and it's, it's written as like, it's, it's written in a mocking tone. There's no escaping it. You can't kind of, you can't whitewash the text of Judges chapter to five, chapter five anyway. Deborah writes a song which pokes fun at the enemy, and I want to just lay this out there: a potent weapon against an enemy that takes itself too seriously is to laugh openly at the spectacle. Deborah mocks the enemy, his sister, his mum, and God laughs at his enemies. Psalm chapter two: the kings of the earth assemble. To make war on God and his anointed. What does God do? Oh no. No, God laughs. Psalm, Psalm 2, God laughs. Why can God laugh? He's happy. God's happy. He's relaxed. Okay? As we serve the Lord and encounter the inevitable opposition as we do, laughter helps us keep perspective. Laughter helps us keep from taking ourselves too seriously. The battles God has called his people to fight require a buoyant, light-hearted, jolly enemy who knows how to laugh, a jolly army who knows how to laugh at the enemy. Deborah summons a willing and confident army. Very first line of the psalm, that the leaders took the lead, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord, we've got an army we can fight with. A happy army, an army that's happy to jump in, an army that's happy to run at these guys. So, Deborah says, go out, fight this battle in the confidence that the Lord has already owned it. And, and Barak says, please come with us. And she says, okay. Now, Andy read the, the Great Commission. We, we quoted a lot. that Jesus stands up like, like the ultimate Deborah. And he says, go out and conquer the world. Go out. Like, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go out and fight. Go, and, go out and fight the Sisera's. Go out and defeat the enemy. Not, not crushing them with tent pegs, but by, by making the world God's friend. 
making disciples of the nations. You don't go and fight with 10 pigs and battle. and We don't do that. We're not called to that. We're called to win the world over and we're called to win it with, with self-sacrificial love and service to our king in the, in the name of Jesus. That's how we're to go and conquer the world. We're to go and turn God's enemies into God's friends. Then they're not enemies anymore. That's how the world's, that's how the enemies get crushed. Okay? That's what God calls us to do. And we don't have to stay and go, oh, please go with us. Jesus knows our chicken hearts and he says, I'm going to be with you all the way. He knows it. He knows it's a big ask. And he, and he kind of, he's gracious enough to us to not make us have to ask. Go into all the world, make disciples of the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Before you even ask, I'm coming with you. I'm with you. I'm with you in this till the very end of the age. Would you please stand? Lord, um, we lay this scattergun approach <laughs> to this text before you this morning. We thank you, Father, for um, the, the high calling of walking in, um, Lord, under your banner, the high calling of walking in Christ, the high calling of walking out from this place into our week, knowing we're going into a battle that requires light hearts, happy and glad smiles, and a willingness to, to, um, to walk into, in obedience, everything that you have before us. That's a, that's a big calling, and we're praying, Lord, this morning, whether we're young or old, whether we're male or female, whether we are uh, Greek or Jew, <laughs> whatever we are today, Lord, we're asking that you would fill us with courage like Barak, courage like Deborah, courage like JL, to go and fight your battles and to make your enemies into your friends. We ask this in the strong name of our leader who is with us, the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.